Hey, what's up? It's Mr. Bill. The track you're listening to right now is the result of a 35-hour tutorial series where I recorded the process of making this song from start to finish and explained myself along the way. If you're interested in learning how to make music or sharpening your craft, go to mrbillstunes.com and check it out. Enjoy the tune. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. sick all right man thanks and uh welcome to the podcast hey thanks for having me yeah of course for those who i guess don't know you maybe give them a little bit of a rundown on your projects and what you do sure uh i'm my name is jeremy uh i have a youtube channel called red means recording um and we do uh i don't know like music tech music hardware music making sometimes mental health um a, a variety of things it's a pretty adhd channel to be honest um that's where i'm mostly known for but um i do music and sound design and stuff like that um behind the scenes mm. <clears throat> yeah it's kind of funny how much like mental health has came into the conversation these days in the the music industry yeah and i mean i think it's probably being talked about heavily in every industry i'm really just partial to the music industry because that's pretty much like everyone I follow on the internet is in the music industry pretty much so I kind of mm -hmm. just hear about it from that perspective but yeah there is a shit ton of artistic anxieties and just general anxieties to wade through I think in the uh in the music communities or just being a musician um and I'm sure that's not helped by the fact that the work by nature is like solitary you sitting in a room with a computer <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely are you feeling yourself any additional pressure uh as a you know in your in your position mentally oh, 100 percent. yeah 100 oh, okay. yeah I, th I don't think that ever goes away the time that i actually realized that was when i played red rocks to like you know ten thousand people and in my mind when you had gotten to that point um you made it like, yeah, you'd made it and like yeah. you didn't have any problems. You were just like ostensibly happy all the time and like yeah. shit, you know. <laughs> and I remember um, like halfway through my set just being like, man, I still feel fucking. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> like on stage, you're like, this yeah, did literally not fix my depression. <laughs> yeah, literally like halfway through my set, I was kind of like having these anxieties and like all this kind of shit. Oh my and God. I kind of like had that sort of conversation in my head, like halfway through my set, basically being like, well, wait, hold on. If it's not fixed now, it's never going to be fixed. <laughs> like, that, um, is, uh, yeah. that is a, a little dark night of the soul moment. I, I can't believe you were having to wrestle with that, like on stage. Like it's some like fucking, this is how you write a, a movie thing with a guy's interior monologue. Like everything slows down and like, it's just your thoughts. <laughs> it happened, dude, it happens all the time, especially like when I'm playing shows, because I mean, when you're on the stage, it, you, you would think that it feels like a party for you too, but it kind of doesn't like it, mm -hmm. it can, if, if the venue is correct and the energy is right and everything that it can. But for the most part, especially with the bigger shows, like Lost Lands, for instance, that I played this weekend, it's like, yeah, you're raised, you're like, 
50 feet or 100 feet away from anyone like it's you're, you're up in this little box basically and like everyone's yep. like really far back so you don't really like feel can you feel like you're in just sort of this own your own little space just djing how you would normally when i'm practicing <laughs> on these back here or something and sure and so i'm kind of just like in my own little world and like you know djing i would say doesn't really require too much mental energy like especially if you're playing like a if you know what you're going to play like the set is yeah. kind of planned out and um, and you've practiced it so many, so many times that you're at the point where it's like almost boring to do it now, which sure. is basically, I think, where you need to be to be able to play like a really flawless set anyway. But yeah, so like during that that time period, I always get into these little conversations with myself of like how I'm feeling and stuff like that. That's really interesting, and I'm I'm really glad that you shared that. Like, it's something that I've struggled with a lot regarding like YouTube. Um, and the concept of like anal anal analyzable success, like the concept of like how many plays you've gotten, how many views you've gotten, um, all that kind of stuff, you know, it's very like by the numbers. And I think about like how, you know, none of that stuff makes me happy. And then like, I'm like, okay, well, if I was touring, if I was being like, like a, a legit musician, would that make me happy? And I think back to like, um, like I was on tour as a stagehand and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, that's just a shit ton of work. And like, it wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't actually like, like fix, I'm going to TLDR this. There's never enough. Like it, like there's no such thing as like, like a, a level of fame that just like fixes you. Like, and so it's kind of at this point for me, it's, I want to like figure out how to turn a little bit more inward and, and still be creative and be uh, obviously professionally successful, but um, sort of, reframe my concept of success because it's it's doesn't really make any sense to me anymore <laughs> i don't really know how to relate to it yeah it almost feels like the goal should not be trying to attain some like type of status or some amount of plays or views or whatever to try and uh coerce yourself into happiness but rather just try to concentrate on how to be happy so that when you even do get those plays and views that it's even enjoyable <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Absolutely. Do you uh, do you ever play live live? Like, have you ever tried to do that or done that uh, as opposed to like doing DJ sets? Um, so I would say the only time I've played live live is when I was like seventeen or eighteen, and I was in a metal band. Mm -hmm. um, Fair but enough. I have tried to convert music that I've written, like to be listened to as an electronic music piece. I've tried to convert that into what would be considered like a live ish. Uh, you know, electronic music performance where, you know, you break all the stems out and you mute parts and try and play them and all this kind of shit. But it always felt felt kind of cheap to me. Like it didn't ever feel like I was um, <clears throat> actually playing live. It felt just the same as DJing. Like, but more work, but like a shit ton more way work. More, like... Way more work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and in terms of how the tra like how the performances were perceived and, and, you know, interpreted by the audience, it seemed like it was the exact same as DJing. Yeah. So <clears throat> I don't yep. really ever think that, um, yeah, for me, I sort of had this realization around like 2017 where I was like, I don't like building sets. I get way more mm -hmm. nervous when I go on stage. No one really cares too much that it's live because they don't even know what I'm doing up there. Like there's so exactly. much like um, shit going on with the computer the that they don't know about. Yep. Everything. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> So I was just like, I don't know, really all I want to do is make beats. Like I really enjoy just writing music. Mm -hmm. And I also hated the fact that the <clears throat> the sets were so um, 
uh, like rigid, you know, you couldn't easily change them. So once you like built this linear one hour set, it was kind of tough in the moment to be like, oh, I want to just like throw in this new track that I wrote, right? Because to throw in this new track that I wrote would require me like stemming it, figuring out which parts to mute and whatnot, building mm -hmm. instruments to play those parts, um, doing like a bunch of programming stuff. And by that point, it's just like, well, I spent like, you know, a week writing the track and then it took me like another two days just to figure out how to play it. I was like, you know, fuck this. Like, I, <laughs> or I, I could just DJ it. <laughs> exactly. And like get the exact same response from the crowd and have this just like way more streamlined system of like music to stage. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. It just And it seemed to make a lot more sense for me. And, and I think it, it's definitely been better for me like over the past few years having that kind of system rather than a than a live system. What, what about you? Have you performed? Uh, before? Yeah, I've been, I've been digging into it a bit more lately and it's definitely a learning process and a vetting process. Um, a long time ago, I used to DJ a lot in San Francisco and I want to talk a little bit more about DJing with you cause I am, I have some questions. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but we'll get back to that. Um, so like back when I, when I was DJing, I was really like impressed by the local producer scene as well, or at least like I was super impressed with like this, this group called like Dirty Bird. Um, they're like, yeah, yeah, DJ the house, house people. yeah. so they, they're it's like Claude on strokes thing, right? Yeah. Claude, I think is the founder. Um, but there was like a lot of really talented producers and continue to be like Justin Martin and Christian Martin and stuff like that. Like the music was just like, it was up, up my alley and they were all San Francisco based. Um, and I just kind of like started to see this, you know, this, uh, connection between like these really, really talented producers who were making the tracks that, that they could then spin at their, at their parties. And I was like, I want to be able to do something like that. So I, I started to do sets like how you described, like, and I did it like twice, like the stemming kind of thing. And it was so fucking nerve wracking <laughs> and just like, like I couldn't even, I couldn't even talk with people as they like came up and said, Hey, how you doing? Or whatever, you know? And that was kind of a part of the DJ like experience in the crowds mm. that I was in was like, you know, there was a social aspect to it. So I like stopped doing that. And then it wasn't until, um, just, I think like a year or two ago, uh, after I had ac accumulated a lot of gear and gotten really comfortable doing performance stuff sort of for YouTube with like the electron boxes and, and modular to an extent that I, I realized that I could combine some uh, combination of those those pieces of gear and come up with something that could be performed live. But it's like it's really hard and it's really hard to figure out like what you want to do, what live means and how much control you want over um, the system. You know, you have something like that's like a sort of on rails stemmed thing where you're muting and doing effects, which is basically like it's kind of like what the I think that's what the dude like um, not the singer dude, but the other dude um, in Underworld does live. He's got this like big old SSL console. And I think he like basically plays back and mixes stems. And that's cool for them. I mean, they got so much shit going on. like, And there's an expectation that the tracks are going to sound a certain way. So that's cool. But for me. I wanted to do a little bit more. I wanted to have like, you know, I want to touch knobs. I want to play with cutoff filters and shit like that. So I'm still trying to figure out exactly like what the nice, like sweet spot combination of determinism and, and live is with that stuff. But, um, I'd say that with certain pieces of gear, it becomes a lot more fun. Uh, like the electron boxes are definitely meant to be performed live with. And that feels, mm -hmm. that feels really good. Yeah, I would say um, 
to play electronic music live, it has to be written live. Like mm, yep. you in the studio need to develop this like system of controllers and everything that can produce pieces of music live. And then you need to make the music that way. Yeah, and I completely agree. That's the only way it makes sense. Because if you sit there for like, like I do for, you know, literally I'll spend like 50 hours to 100 hours on a single track, like mm -hmm. over the span of months, of course, where I will like dial in every little edit and like mix everything exactly how I want it and like make it all so perfect yep. that it really makes zero fucking sense to then stem it out to where like the stems don't even sound like the finished master anymore because like, you know, otherwise you have, to, you have to basically stem it through the same bus processing over and over. So it like yeah. becomes this iterative like line of clipping and compression which sounds kind of worse than the, <laughs> than the finished master does and then on top of that um then you start like applying effects to it and stuff and it's like well if i wanted these effects to be there i would have just produced them in and really like the only thing that i found that was kind of the only effect that really worked um, on most stuff was just beat repeating drums <laughs> and it just feels so kind of like lame to play a thing out and then just be like oh drum feel <laughs> like this momentary beat repeat effect and it's like i could do like i could just beat repeat the entire thing with an effect on the mixer yeah like beat, beat repeat the entire master and it essentially has the same effect and like <laughs> It, it really yeah, just didn't seem like it was, there was any point to doing it. Um, I think if you're, like, really good at instruments and stuff and that's your main thing, like Haywire, for instance, right? But but then again, like, the way he writes his music is like that. All of the piano yeah. lines and stuff, he plays them in. And so it makes sense for him live to then remove them and play those parts live. Or, like, Infected Mushroom, same deal. Like, Erez is a crazy good keyboard player, so it makes sense then live to to remove those parts and play them live. But Exactly. Yeah, I think if you're like me and you're all mouse and keyboard anyway and just like edit everything and dial everything in that way straight from like the computer, it mm -hmm. really doesn't make any sense to to pull that apart and fuck with it. I completely agree. Uh, when I talk to people in, in like one-on-one -on -one consultations, uh, they're talking about wanting to play live. I always ask them, it's like, okay, what do you want to do? Like, like when you stand there in front of people, like, what is it that you want to do? And always remember that you only have two hands. <laughs> like mm -hmm. you're going to have to make, uh, some decisions about like how, uh, the concept of arrangement works, because that's kind of like the hardest thing is like, even with like really advanced pieces of technology, like, you know, the digitact or, you know, you name it, like whatever live groove box you want to use, there's still the issue of like, a lot of these things that you would do in automation happening all at once. And we can't really do that. Like, it's just not possible to like do all those things at once with our hands. So there's, I remember watching a video, um, of, uh, this group called octave one. They're like a house duo live. Um, and uh, one of them is, is got like a whole table of like 909s, 303s, synths, you know, you know, all the, all the like things that make the sounds. And the other guy is at a big mixing desk and, uh, he's doing like fader movements and also like, um, like effect sends and stuff like that. And I'm like, this is a really, really good example of like how you need to think about what you might be doing live. And also like, it takes two people to get what they're doing, you know? like Two people and, like, $50,000 worth of gear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that, here's the other thing, right, is, like, every club just has, like, $20,000 worth of optimized gear sitting there on the table that's, like, built and has been built over the past, like, 
and developed over the past like 20, 30 years specifically for, for doing this. And they're called CDJs. <laughs> and they just, <laughs> and they're like literally, it's, it's, it's like a $20,000 controller system specifically developed and optimized for playing tracks live. So, yeah. I don't know. When I came to these realizations, I was like, me taking in my like, literally, I was taking a desktop computer <laughs> at, the, at the time, laptops and just, still probably to this. Probably still to this day they can't. Yeah, it's like even the M1s. Um, so I was taking like a desktop computer with me, which I specifically built like into a rack case for um, traveling with. And that was a pain in the ass to fly with. I like built it exactly <laughs> to to specs so I could take it as carry-on. Yeah. Um, so that sucked. And then having to take like a bunch of controllers and, and all this stuff. Yeah, it was just a logistical nightmare now to just like take a USB stick and some headphones and I'm good to go and it makes a lot more sense. So you mentioned earlier that when you DJ, you, you come up with a set and you practice it a lot to the point where it, you know, might feel boring to you. Um, and I, I've been in that position too. I've had like, I never, I don't, I've never DJed like at the level that you do, but I did have moments that felt like that for me when I was DJing in San Francisco, like, uh, like a, a specific, like uh, party night that like was supposed to be like a, a big deal for the community or whatever. And like, for those, I generally uh, would have like a plan set and that was okay. But for most of the time I would just kind of like wing it and react to like what was going on in the venue. Like, do you ever play gigs like that too? Or like how much wiggle room do you give yourself to sort of, um, change what you're doing on the fly? Like, is that even part of how you think about DJing at, at like, you know, when you're up on that box or whatever, like looking at, looking down at a giant crowd of people. So I, I build a new set like every month and the way that I do it is I build the whole thing in arrangement view in Ableton mm -hmm. I just like drag a ton of tracks in and then I start making like tons of like edits and mashups out of those tracks and stuff so for instance like my Lost mm -hmm. Land set was uh like a 650 channel session of just like shit just mashing into other shit for like an hour straight um where I didn't play like anything for longer than 16 bars basically so I was like Holy constantly shit. doing something <laughs> yeah, it was like a pretty intense set. So for something like that, where essentially I was looking at the Lost Land set kind of as like a like a business card, really, mm. you know, because like you're going into this place where like probably 10,000 people in the crowd have not even heard of you, right? So it's like you kind of want to make an impact. So in a set like that, where I know it's really important to like win fans over and like just like curate the best possible set I, I can, I give myself like no wiggle room basically. I make a set and I just play the set. Um, gotcha. <clears throat> but for like a smaller thing where it's, you know, my fans, it's billed as a Mr. Bill headline show. It's in a club of like a thousand people or 500 people or whatever. Um, for those, I'll give myself more wiggle room. But generally the wiggle room that I give myself is digging into other sets that I built in the past. But instead of just sticking to the one playlist, I will like jump between playlists, you know, like maybe go to one from a year ago and then maybe go to one from two years ago and then go back to the one that I'm, that I planned for today and then go back to one from like two months ago. And like, so I have like, you know, hundreds of playlists now that I've done this for, like built these huge, like elaborate sets in Ableton for and basically like rendered all the edits and stuff out to play in a set. And then I'll kind of just have like these points where, where it comes to a track where I'm like, oh, but I had a different edit of that track like, mm. you know, in this different thing. And then I could play in that set for like 10 tracks and then 
come back to this other one from that one and play in that set list for like 10 tracks. So I like kind of have that wiggle wiggle room, but um, definitely I, I never just like put a track in. Oh, you got a visitor. <laughs> I guess, yeah. <laughs> I, I never just like put a track in without putting it into Ableton first and editing it or doing something to it. Um, so yeah, I, I don't have that kind of wiggle room that I gotcha. think people think that a lot of DJs do where you just throw a bunch of tracks in a record box and just like feel it out. Right. Some, some people definitely do, but I personally don't. Cause otherwise I, I've just train wrecked like way too many sets in the past oh, no. from doing, just from <laughs> doing that, you know, like thinking that like, Oh, I got this. And then just like trying to do it and just not having it at all. Um, I think that also, though, the fact that I only really ever play stuff out for like 30 seconds before I mix in a new track, um, it, it really just like, it doesn't give me enough time to think of what I want to play next. Yeah. Without, like, with House or something where you're playing something out for like six minutes, then yeah, like you have a lot of time to be like, all right, what am I going to play next? And you can start digging around. You have like a solid three or four minutes of digging time before you have to like pick something and then start like figuring out how it's going to mix and stuff. But with dubstep where nothing plays for longer than 30 seconds you just don't have that kind of time so you so is that have a to... is that like a is that like a normal thing for djs of that genre like like that they they really go fast with the mixes not not all of them but um in my opinion the good ones yeah like okay. whenever whenever i watch a set where i don't get bored and I'm like, this is sick. And like, I continuously get like dopamine hits from it's because there's a new build up and a new drop happening like constantly and, and like new ideas being presented like every minute, basically. Gotcha. Whereas, you know, a lot of the sets that I see where people don't do that and they kind of just freestyle it and stuff. I personally, I get like a little bored watching those. And so I try to just kind of make sets that I think I personally would like to watch and also ones that I find more fun to play because I also get anxiety standing on stage if I'm not doing something. Like just just standing understand. up there, being like, "All right, track playing, track playing, track playing, track still playing." Yeah, <laughs> like before I like have to do something else. So I try to make it so that like I am just like constantly doing something. Yeah, and that kind of like alleviates some of the anxiety because I'm like I'm busy. You know, I don't have time to have anxiety. <laughs> I have I have two questions from that. One of them I'll, I'll just put them both out there. But like one is uh like how you. Well, I, I want to talk about performance anxiety because uh, I am curious about that. Um, and I also want to know, did you did you start by DJing and then get into producing or was it sort of the other way around? It was the other way around for sure. So I started making music on a computer like long before I played any shows. Um, and I got into that because I started going to Psytrance shows. Hey, yeah, Psytrance. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so in, in Australia, we have these things called doofs. And I used to go to Doof's like every weekend and take acid and shit and like just yep. have a good time hanging out in the forest and listening to Psytrance for like three days straight. <laughs> um, so after getting into that, I had this friend whose name was uh, Frosty and he was like, here's how they do it. They do it using like Ableton or FL or something like this. They make these things and then they play them on CDJs. And at the time I was like, I don't give a fuck about the playing it. Like I just want to make it. Like I'm just interested in how it's made. So I was just like messing around with Ableton a ton. And then I started getting into FX Twin and shit and like messing around with that stuff. Uh, and it wasn't until like years later, like four or five years later, where I even started like getting offers to play shows. And I only got those because I started putting music out online basically. Um, and when I started playing, I was just playing like clips out of Ableton. 
So basically the same concept as DJing, but just with like clips in Ableton, like two decks basically. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't like put a lot of thought into my set. I would just put all the tracks that I had made recently in there and then just go and like try and figure it out on the day. <laughs> sure. And that's how I train wrecked many, many sets. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the thing where you, you make your edits of the tracks that you're going to DJ uh, is something that I, I kind of like cut my teeth on uh, uh, what I think is kind of an important aspect of producing dance music by doing the exact same thing. Cause like I was DJing and, and I wanted tracks that couldn't go together to go together. So I would make mm. these, these edits and sort of re reheats of them. Like, uh, I think that that's a really powerful way for people to learn kind of like not only, uh, how dance music is structured, but also like how to match production styles between things. It can, it can be right. like a really powerful uh, sort of learning tool to mess around with that kind of thing. Yeah, you definitely have to like um, put a lot of effort into like remastering stuff and whatnot. Because mm -hmm. like sometimes you want to play two tracks together and one of them was produced like two months ago and the other one was <laughs> produced in like 2008. Yeah. And the the timing between those two, like it just usually does not match. Here, hold on. I'm gonna send you a um uh a link real quick to check out okay. we're chatting. Where is the chat here? I feel like you would uh find this uh, interesting just to give uh, you an idea. Here. Is it the chat? Yeah. Oh I here found it goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here. So 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 check this out real quick and like okay. describe to people what you uh what you see <laughs> oh my god holy shit okay so uh it's a video um it is it looks like modern art kind of but it's actually an ableton session um <laughs> with a cascading oh wow yeah you ever see those videos that's like different sort algorithms like like uh, trying to make sense of like um like data it kind of looks like that uh it is a um it is a set, uh, and each track uh, has like probably like five or six different tracks. Uh, this is, I think, this is your edit set, right? Like, this is you. This is doing this your is my edits. lost. This is my lost line set. Yeah. yeah, this is. You should just post this to Twitter. This is fucking nuts. <laughs> like, yeah, this is. It's like a six hundred and fifty channel session of just like every track that I wanted to yeah. play mashed into like every other track, and so. Then basically what I'll do is I'll wow. find like groupings of them that yeah. make sense to go together and then I'll like play sort of two at a time on two decks and then I'll mix into two more playing on the other deck and like kind of go between them. Okay. Very, yeah. very cool to see. So, yeah. so to so to try and do that, I think in real time is just not possible. No, no like, way. To, for me to think of even all of like for, for it to even occur to me to like play all of those tracks took me like a month. Mm-hmm. So yep. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like it's a different beast. I think thinking about like a set as a like a in the moment reading the crowd thing versus like I'm just gonna fucking spam people. <laughs> sure. <laughs> How do you? Um, I mean, this is. I don't know why I'm building this up so much. I just trying to find the right word. When you started DJing, uh, and especially now that you've had a lot more exposure to DJing. Um, especially at the level that you have, how's that changed how you think about like making your music? Like what was that feedback loop like for you? Like both from, I mean, there's like three elements to it. There's like the arrangement, there's, um, there's the mixing and then there's, I guess like sound design and stuff like that. But really the, the other, the first two, like there's probably a feedback loop that occurred where you started, uh, it, the two things started informing each other. Like, do you, do you think that that's something that you could talk about? 
Yeah, I feel this podcast is coming to you interviewing me, but that's fine. <laughs> no, I'm just curious though. I mean, you're, you've yeah, done yeah. stuff that I haven't, and like, and and your production is like really, really good. So it's like I'm I I want to know, and probably other people would love to know, like just what that's like. Yeah, yeah. So definitely, um, there was a point where I was like, all right, the music that I'm making is fun to make, but it's not so good to play. And then there's been other points in my career where I've played other people's music and I've been like, this is fun to play, but it's not that fun to make. And so I think like I've, I try to find the middle of that like Venn diagram of stuff that is like good for other people to listen to and, and stuff that's good to play, but also like really fun and challenging and enjoyable for me to make. And I think that this comes down to like an emotional thing, which is that like, I'm not so emotionally strong that I can just make shit for myself and yeah. not give a fuck like whether or not anybody else likes it. But I'm also not like so emotionally weak that I have feel like I have to pander to people and that I feel like people have to like me. So I, I kind of try and like sit in the middle of trying to find what I enjoy and what others enjoy. And definitely that has just been a swinging pendulum for my whole career, I think. And it's probably the same for you with YouTube videos, right? It's like there's ones that are more like self-indulgent and then ones that are more like you're just doing your job and then there's like a interesting middle ground. And that I, that middle ground, I think, is like the ideal thing for like most artists, trying to find like what it is that you really love and enjoy doing and something that other people can also connect to and feel like they want to reward you for doing and feel like they want to like encourage you to keep doing via, you know, whatever, supporting you online in various yeah. ways or whatever. It's hard it's very hard for me to understand where that middle ground is. It's like, it's constantly being redefined through a whole lot of different factors. Um, and I'm not sure what your relationship is to sort of like the, the really dry business analytical side of, of what you do, the, you know, completely unartistic part of it where you analyze the success and failure of various things that you've done and try to, follow that but i have a really really difficult time even conceiving of trying to do that so it's like mm. it's it's a it's a very messy process for me um and i feel very unprofessional most of the time um whereas i think other people who maybe have a little bit more aptitude for that can find uh i don't know a little bit more center like that that center point that you're talking about um how do you feel about like the sort of like you know analytical side of what you've done and how does that relate to like how you make your art so i'm i'm lucky that i have um some people that help me do that i have a really okay, good, good manager yeah and i have a really i just hired a really good marketing team so they've just started like doing a full um like audit of all my socials and trying to figure out like what works and what doesn't and awesome. so i'm actually the answer for that is actually still up in the air but just looking at your <laughs> youtube channel right now I mean, you have like half a million subs and it looks like the most popular stuff is OP1 videos. Yeah, yeah, and I stopped making those a long time ago because uh, they just didn't, they, they stopped being fulfilling to me. Um, also, mm. someone like completely ripped off them, like completely, to, to the point where uh, I was getting mistaken for that person um, and oh, I wow. was like, fuck this. So but, they also had like a lot of success doing it as well? Yeah, Yes, they, well, yeah, I mean, they don't have, I think they have like w probably one video that hit a million or something like that. Um, they definitely like got a little bit of success and ran with it and that was, I mean, part of the same reason that I got popular too was because 
I saw that people were looking at something that I did and it, it, it got a lot more views than I ever would have expected. And so I did more of that, but eventually I got tired of it. Um, and getting tired of something that people know you for and, um, like you for is a real bad professional move. To, it to, is. Yeah. And I to be, yeah, I've done the same thing multiple times too. Like I've gotten really well known for glitch hop and then I just got sick of making glitch hop. And then I got really well known for IDM, got sick of making that. And now I just make dubstep, <laughs> which I'm not known for yet, but probably will be soon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I it, mean, which is in you just had, the you live. Had to do what you, you had to do what you like wanted to do, right? Like you, you right. can't make something that doesn't speak to you anymore and doesn't bring you happiness. Uh, it won't, it won't work. Right. I got to imagine though, the cost of doing this in like a live show environment is worse than in a YouTube video, because if someone comes to a YouTube video, it didn't cost them anything. They didn't have to leave their house. They didn't have to do anything. They come to the video. They're like, ah, oh, it's not the same thing I want. And they just click off and go to a different video or leave a nasty comment if they are really pissed off. Sure. But like in this case, like where I get known for something, like I got texts, I, I still get them. Like I got one on the weekend of someone being like, oh, I hope that you were trolling this weekend by playing dubstep. And I was like, no, this, huh. I just wanted, I just sent back a message. And they, they were like, why did you play dubstep? And I was like, oh, I just wanted to play the stuff I've been making recently. No, like, well, I hope you were trolling. <laughs> and I was like, no, I wasn't wow. trolling. But, but this is like clearly a person who like has who got into me my stuff in like 2015 probably or something, and just thought that I'd still been doing that. Um, and yeah, I guess like he got like, extra annoyed, right? Because then he spent like however much on a ticket. He like had left left his oh. house, like came to the show, all that kind of stuff. Um, so wait, what what kind of stuff are you like super excited about these days? Like, what what kind of videos? Your, I, I can't tell ones. you. I have no fucking idea. Like, honestly, I am. <laughs> I, 2023 has been a year of like just losing my shit. I have no idea what I am supposed to be doing. I have no idea what the channel should be. I've tried out a lot of different stuff. The stuff that has been really fun for me to make that uh, is like really absurd has not done very well um, from a numbers perspective. And then like random like vlogs will do really well and i'm like well fuck like what what do you want like what do you want from me i have no idea um pair that with the fact that like the youtube algorithm has been being really fucked with a lot by youtube um and mm. a, a lot of people i talk to are like we have no idea what's going on with our channels anymore too the U youtube's shit like it's not a great place to try and be successful with I don't know. I'm be, I sound like I'm being so, so, so salty right <laughs> now. Uh, it, it, I'm having a hard time with YouTube. I don't really know how else to describe it. Um, so I don't have a lot of excitement right now about video making. I, I think next year I might try to focus a little bit more on some like longer form stuff. Um, one of the things I see from a lot of people is confusion regarding um, what certain genres are, like simple things like ambient and techno and stuff like that. Mm. Um whenever I have someone come to me and they say, I want to make techno, I'm like, okay, well, what, what kind, <laughs> what kind of techno yeah, yeah. do you want to make? Um, so I think some, some videos regarding like genre and, and history and stuff like that could be cool, but I really don't know, man. Like, um, I'm, I'm pretty jaded right now regarding a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I feel like everyone kind of gets like, even the biggest YouTubers kind of get like that. Like even Andrew Huang and stuff like that I've chatted to and he's, you know, everyone gets jaded about their own, like, 
thing. And I think it's sure. it's like it's a part of the the mental game when this shit becomes your job and yep. when things don't do well it almost feels like it's a personal attack from your fans or something like that. It's very hard not to take failure personally and it's not even yeah, I just take it personally. I'm like, well, I guess I'm I'm since I'm not doing OP1 videos anymore or oops, I'm I'm showing my face in videos. People don't like that or I'm making jokes versus just being really dry with the content. It's really weird because like I've had people say, "Hey, just make normal tutorial videos. Don't do like funny stuff with it." And it's like, if I do a normal tutorial or a walkthrough video on like a Eurorack module, which I'm really into Eurorack, I like that shit, it'll get like 5,000 views. And that's not the kind of channel that I really want to be running. Like, uh, there are a lot of people who are doing really kind of dry and informative and useful walkthroughs of pieces of hardware or software. I don't really find that fulfilling. Uh, I would much rather be a lot more creative with what I'm doing um, and and try to make weird stuff. So we'll see how that expresses itself. I mean, the channel might just continue to be ADHD as hell, and you know, um, maybe that'll be fine. I'm not really sure. It's it YouTube's desire for you to be like monomaniacal and almost uh, treat your channel as like a television show um, is uh, really weird, and I don't really agree with that as a uh as the way things should be on that platform i don't think it was set up to be that way but that's definitely how it's become now yeah i mean that's also somewhat reasonable i feel like because quite often like for instance um with ben's videos right like ben and gear whenever i go to watch a ben and gear video it's like i know what i'm gonna get you know what you're gonna get i get it i'm stoked that's that but well like there's some other channel like i used to love this channel called like um pronunciation dictionary or something like that where like oh yeah it was just this where they just pronounce words completely wrong yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i used to think that shit was so funny and then it clearly like changed owners to like someone else who bought the channel and they tried to keep doing the thing that the last person was doing but they couldn't do it as well Mm. and then i just started to be like ah what it's not the same thing anymore you know it's not the reason why i subscribed to this thing in the first place and it's not the reason why i'm coming back to it so i just kind of like tuned off it for a while I, i think another thing to note though is um when things do bad it's like easy to get in your head and, and start being like, oh, well, I, I'm shit. Like, I, I suck. Like, I did the wrong thing. I'm bad. Like, all this shit. Mm-hmm. But when you think about it, that's it's still just the ego that's doing that. And it's literally just the opposite part of the ego that tells you that, like, I'm awesome and I did the right thing and I'm great and I'm doing all this <laughs> sick shit. <laughs> and I feel like neither of those views are necessarily correct. I feel like... I guess this is a really Buddhist way of thinking, but like the yeah, the middle ground I think is the way to be with all of it. Like when something does really well, to just like try and look at it, um, uh, I guess like through like logic and shit, like why did it do well, blah blah blah, and try to like not involve yourself personally too much in it. And when something does bad, do the same thing, which I find tough. Like it's so easy when something does oh, well yeah. to be like, yeah, I, I'm awesome. And then it's so easy when something does bad to do the complete opposite thing. But I think the right thing to do is try and be in the middle for both. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it usually when something is difficult to pull off mentally, it's probably like worth trying. Um, and what you've described is very unnatural for most people to uh, yeah, yeah. to not take things personally. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, 
artists are generally weird. Uh, so um, the I don't know. Yeah, it's it's tough. You're you're absolutely right. Some level of detachment from success and failure is is important. Um, I personally really just like the process of making things. Um, mm. And so I, I feel like uh, that's going to keep me engaged in this process um, probably far longer than I should be, as long as it remains like professionally viable uh, that, you know, I'm able to pay my rent and stuff like that. Um, right. Because I really like making videos and I really like working with this equipment and I really like making music. So, you know, I don't really what is, stop um... doing that. What is your main source of income? Because surely it's not YouTube views, right? Because I think <laughs> no, I've heard of a not. lot of a lot of people say that. Like, like even Ben, who gets like a lot of views, has told me that like the amount of money he gets from the YouTube views is absolutely not paying his mortgage. Absolutely not. No, uh, I don't know at what level you need to be on YouTube to consider your the AdSense revenue a livable wage certainly right. not where i am um probably like uh, 10 10 million views a month or something something i mean yeah i would imagine like a million views per video uh something mm. like that um i'm not 100 like percent sure mr beast shit but i think even for mr beast like his main wage is probably like his other stuff like beast bars and um <laughs> Yeah, whatever sure. else like his chocolate and his other shit that he's got going on i feel like he's got cookies most, now yeah, dude, uh, they're not bad. I tried the chocolate the other day. <laughs> <laughs> I tried the D's Nuts one just because it was a funny name. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, like, so do you have things like that, like extra sources of income? A ways? bunch of little ones, yeah. Uh, so my main source of income is Patreon, um, but specifically, like, it's split a little bit between Patreon as just people that want to support me and then um, one-on-one -on -one lessons. So I do, uh, one-on-one -on -one music production lessons. Um, and yeah, like anything regarding what I do on the channel, I, I can talk to people about track feedback, that kind of stuff. Um, and that is probably where, like, if you had to make like a pie chart, that's probably Dude, where most of my money comes from. Insane right now. She's like running between this window and this other window out there. I think she sees like a cat outside or something. What? So that, that was just distracting the fuck out of me. Is she, that what like, that pitter patter sound was? Yeah, she like sprinted in here and looked at, through this window like, what the fuck? Like it started scratching the window and then did this, <laughs> and just ran straight back out. That's really, really funny. She's Sorry, got the rips. Sorry, my bad. I, I apologize. No, no, it's all good. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably um, mostly from, from like the one-on-one -on -one lesson stuff. But then I'm trying – I'm not trying to. I have like – you know, you can make presets. You can make sample packs. You can do um, all these sort of like – little things that maybe take a week or so for you to put together and then you put them up for sale and they can kind of like, you know, trickle in some income via that. Mm. I want to do more of that stuff because it's actually pretty fun to make. Yeah. Um, making sample packs, packs is super fun. Yeah. I actually so, run a sample pack label. Oh, really? Yeah. It's called Belegal Sounds. It's like Belegal? a Belegal Sounds. Yeah. And I have a label attached to it called Belegal Beats, which is like a sort of an IDM label, which I mainly made because there's a bunch of people on my Discord who make really sick music and they had oh, awesome. kept asking me, like, where do I put this? And I'm like, I don't know, but this is really sick. So I made a label <laughs> for it. That's rad. Um, yeah, actually, uh, this is another thing that has gotten me, like, semi-canceled as the name of my community, which wasn't even named by me. It was named by my fans. Um, it was originally called The Belegal Immigrants, and people, like, got mad because they 
well, like it, it's a reference to illegal immigrants and that's wrong. So I changed it to beleagles. And they were like, well, that's just a slang name for illegals. Oh, my gosh. And so I was like, all right, well, I'll change it to beleagal community. And the, I didn't really, like, want to fully change it to something else like Beluminati or whatever the fuck because <laughs> then I would have to, like, totally rebrand my labels. Everything? To, yeah, exactly. So if anyone out there is still annoyed about that, um, yeah, I apologize. <laughs> People get annoyed that's, about some... That's very, very frustrating. Yeah. I mean, there there are definitely are some aspects of I guess we'll we'll call it cancel culture that I guess can um, do something. I mean, I got embroiled in some of that like earlier this year. It feels like it was like twenty years ago. Yeah, but, talk like, talk about that a bit, like the um one with the guy from Spitfire Audio. Sure. Right? Yeah. yeah if so you want to go into that for people I can, who are unaware. Yeah. It's still happening too, so it's actually a great time to bring it up. Um, so. There is a sample company called Spitfire Audio. They make uh, instruments. They make like, you know, multi-sample Pretty good instrument instruments context. as well. Absolutely great instruments. Yeah. I mean, I really like their stuff. Um, and at some point, their co-founder, Christian Henson, tweeted out that he couldn't hold it in anymore and he was fully in support of jk rowling and glinner who is graham linum um two of the uk's um uh, most <laughs> notorious transphobes um so basically i don't i don't know why i never actually figured out what his path to this radicalization was but he he just came out and said hey uh I like what these two people have to say. And it was, it's bad. Like it's real bad. JK Rowling and, and well, let's just say Glenner has like done some really insanely fucked up shit in the name of his ideology. And Rowling is just like, it's one of the worst stories of, you know, everyone's ruled ruined childhood. You could possibly ask for. Right. So, um, and then at some point, after this, uh, Henson was like, oh, uh, Jordan Peterson's got some good ideas too. And I'm like, oh my God, this dude, this dude is doing, is going to do some harm. So, well, um, <laughs> Jordan Peterson does have some good ideas, but he has a lot of bad ideas too. In the context of coming in the context of that statement, I think, think his context is really important here. Like if, right. if you come out and you say, Hey, I'm starting to align with some really nasty right-wing ideology that likes to subjugate people. Um, and then you also say, I think this person has some good ideas. You have to kind of like contextualize this, the latter statement. And, and yeah, yeah. In that you know what context, I, mean? I think he's probably not referring to Jordan Peterson's theory of like, go and clean your room so you can clean your house so you can clean up your community. I think he's probably... <laughs> You have to remember also that that the reason that Jordan Peterson got famous was because he went on this big um, tirade. He like stood on the park bench and like made some speech in a university or something. He took. He thought. Oh God, I can't remember what the hell the bill was called. But like basically, Canada pa passed a bill that was like an anti transphobia law of some kind they're involving language and and um uh peterson like made it his life's work uh to like oppose this bill and i mean it was it was transphobic like it was it was shitty so like that's his that's his rise to power um and uh anyways 
uh, I made a video about this because I don't want bigots in our community. Like, I, like I don't want bigots. I don't think there's that that this this community should uh, tolerate bigotry, um, and especially at that level. You know, like like this is a person who like does Christian Henson like does soundtracks for like you know major television shows, movies. He's, he has a lot of fingers and a lot of things like orchestras and, um, and he has a lot of clout and it's insane to me that Spitfire would just be like, yeah, that's cool. Like, yeah, these people want to eradicate trans people. So, and our co-founder just said he like totally agrees with them. So let's go ahead and uh, just make that normal now. Um, and I interviewed a lot of people involved with, um, uh, the community around Spitfire, they had a thing called uh, Piano Book, which was a community sample um, uh, instrument sort of thing where people would create instruments from around the world. It was very cool. Um, and there was Labs, which was sort of like a level above Piano Book. Um, Labs was like directly related to Spitfire. And it was like their free instruments that they would do and send out. A lot of really highly respected stuff around there. But um, Henson's uh, call to transphobia uh, sort of like destroyed a lot of people's involvement with Spitfire, including, um, one, uh, trans woman who, um, was working directly with Spitfire and her, her product was coming out like, and then Henson tweeted and like, she wasn't able to even like promote her thing anymore because, uh, like they should be promoting this as well. So anyways, that whole thing happened. Um, eventually, well, Henson stepped down as director. Um, Spitfire never really said anything. Uh, they put out a statement from the CEO um, who they later fired and they put in a new leader of Piano Book, but all information regarding that has been scrubbed, um, which is very strange. Uh, we don't really know what's going on with that. Henson has since deleted his Twitter and he's trying to start a new uh, company called, I think, the Crow Hill Company. Um, so... There's shit still happening in the background. Um, Why did that I, he delete his Twitter just because he was getting a lot of hate? Or I think, and I, I this is all speculation. It's very opaque and murky right now. I have not been able to get to the bottom of a lot of what's going on. But I think because he's trying to start a new company, he is making it harder for him to be reached, <laughs> so to speak, when that company... Um, comes out when that company goes live. So like people won't be able to like add him on Twitter and, you know, um, be like, yo, is this you and shit like that? That's my guess. Um, why he crawled back to Twitter after he, um, you know, made his Twitter like private after the Spitfire thing happened shows like a lot of fucking balls, honestly, and not good balls, like gross balls. Um, <laughs> so, like, uh, so yeah, it's, it's very weird. Um, all of this could be fixed real quick. If, um, if anyone involved at the level of, uh, Spitfire and or Henson just kind of wanted to come out and say, Hey, yeah, I, I was wrong about wanting to get rid of trans people. Um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't actually agree with this stuff. I have done some research and I don't really, feel that way anymore. So sorry about that. Um, it's not hard to fix this, uh, but it's just like doubling down on it. And that's really problematic to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you know, that's essentially what happened to me as well, yeah. except I had the response of, uh, well, so I'll explain the whole thing. So basically yeah. what happened was 
I was getting my album mastered by this dude called Dan Smith who works at uh, Sick Mastering in the UK. He masters stuff for like OPO, Culprit, Cohen. Oh, yeah. Bunch of really, he does really good work. So I was getting my stuff mastered by him and I like tweeted about it being like, oh, so I'm getting my album mastered by this guy. I'm really stoked to see how it turns out and I'm stoked to put this music out soon, blah, blah, blah. And then somebody was like, oh, is this this guy who said that like, uh, trans women shouldn't be able to fight cis women in sports. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with that too. Like, trans women shouldn't be able to fight cis women in sports. And then I just got fucking piled on. Yeah. And a bunch of people, like, started tweeting at me being like, this is disgusting, this is transphobic, blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, it was, like, something I just never really thought of, like, trans women fighting cis women in sports. And I was just like, I mean, it seems like a normal thing that, like, a you know, trans women shouldn't be able to fight cis women, blah, blah. Anyway, so... Sure. I got piled on by people, and then one of my responses to one of the people was that, well, his uh, Dan uh, Smith, his father is actually also a trans woman. Oh. And so I responded to someone being like, this guy, his dad is a trans woman. Like, I think he obviously has some empathy for trans people. And they were like, his dad? You mean his mum? That's disgusting that you would call it his, call them his dad. And I was like, I mean, Dan himself literally told me, I'm using his words. Sure. <laughs> so anyway, I just like, it just kept getting worse and worse. And I was like, there's nothing, this isn't working out for me. I might, I'm just going to de- deactivate my Twitter and I'm just going to go like, figure out what to do about this yeah so i spent literally like two days just listening to um podcasts and reading books on uh trans women in sports and basically learned that it's like an extremely nuanced thing and like to have the correct opinion on it is just not at all intuitive like it's it's a really deep topic and pretty much what i the bottom line of it is it depends how long they've been on hormone therapy mm. as to whether or not they should be allowed to fight a cis woman. And that time is about two to three years. And the reason why is because then their testosterone level is about the same as a cis mm. woman. Um, <clears throat> but then that opens up this other argument of like, well, should we, we be testing cis women's testosterone levels? And if their tos- <laughs> testosterone levels are like slightly right. higher, should they be then fighting men and, and all this? It gets like really complicated. So anyway, I made that apology with all of that information in it. And a bunch of the people who were shitting on me were basically like, wow, I even learned some stuff from your apology. You know, like you went, and I just like- learned some stuff from what you just said. So it's like. Yeah, wow. Imagine knowledge like actually having a positive like Yeah, and I mean things. like in the first place I didn't even think it was a transphobic view to have. I was just like right. like in my mind it was just men fighting women bad. But it's obviously a lot more complicated. So now my viewpoint on it is a lot more nuanced, but I mean, it was pretty easy to just like deactivate my shit, learn about it and then apologize and be like I was wrong. So yeah, I don't understand why other I people am just can't do that. Very immersed in 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 i guess left wing queer spaces uh online um and and i still feel under informed a lot of the times when i am um making or or having thoughts about something or about to make a statement about something like i it's not my life right like like i'm gay but i'm not i'm not trans and the discourse and the the sort of just like the complexities and nuances of it 
I don't know necessarily if I could completely understand unless I was like trans. Like it just is what it is. So you kind of have to like just admit that like, yeah, this is, this is not something that is part of my daily life. Like it is other people. Um, and, and like try and, un, and understand it as best you can. Um, it's hard. It, it is hard. And I don't, I don't think that the way that you initially reacted is really that crazy. Like, like even, I mean, you got dogpiled and you found out that it was a lot more nuanced than it was, but not everybody does that. Right. Like a lot of people would, would have that happen to them and they would sort of get like, they would get radicalized because like the, the, the transphobes and the gender critical feminists and, and the, the weirdos that they're all weirdos. Um, they like it when people, uh, come to their side and then get like martyred. Basically they love it. Um, Glinner, uh, Gremlinum, like basically like set his little bot army and his whole weird thing, um, on Spitfire and on Christian Henson to help him, um, by like having all these people like say, Oh, I'm not ever you, you, you made him step down for like speaking, you know, the truth. It's just an opinion. Like I'm never buying Spitfire again. And these are people who like, are obviously like, like AI generated, like profile pictures, if they even have one and like all this really, really weird shit. Um, the it's, it's much more complicated than like most people probably know. And even being deeply embedded in it, I still don't feel like I am like an expert on any of it. Hmm. No, definitely when I got dogpiled, I did have some feelings of like, fuck the left and like, I'm going to sure. go right. And like, you know, I definitely had some feelings like that. But I, there was a lot, a lot of people who were like in those comments, uh, who were like good friends of mine who I trust and have known for a long time and think they're great people and, and everything like that. So I definitely like, yeah, the response I had was like, I need to figure out why I'm wrong and, and, that's good. Apologize for it, but yeah, I can see. I, I definitely could understand how, when somebody gets dogpiled like that, that their reaction is to just go far right and just be like, "Fuck the left, these people suck." <laughs> yeah, because it does no, suck absolutely. to get dogpiled like that. Fucking, it hurts your feelings, man. Like to have a shitload of people just like hating you, like simply. I mean, it's it's crazy. Like because it's no time in history has it really been possible. Like very few circumstances can a mob all hate you at once like <laughs> in, in the real world you know unless you're like a giant politician or something but like now on twitter it can just happen like that and yeah fucking it's it's a lot more intense than i think people who haven't experienced that before realize like when everyone's just ganging up on you like that it's really hard to to deal with emotionally and i, I think a lot of the times the especially with this kind of stuff the uh the level of vitriol that you can have thrown at you is really it's like it's unlimited. Like, it's, like, <laughs> uh, it's crazy. Like the like how wound up people will get like this. Like um, to the also point to where, like, add to that as well is I can also see how people's response to that would then be to switch over to playing the victim, like Base Nectar has. Like his all of his oh, responses. Oh God. Okay. Have I gotta basically... take a, Hold on. Hold on. I, we're going to get this. I have to take a piss. Hold on one second. I've okay. been drinking like this yeah. giant thing of water. We're going to talk about base nectar. Yes. Yeah, I'll be back as well. One sec. <clears throat> 
All right, I'm back. I like yeah. that we both just we mentioned bass next year and we're like, all right, this is going to get deep. Let's take a piss. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I can see how like in his position, right, he's been just like hated on so much <coughs> that now he feels like a victim. Yep. He doesn't feel like he's he's just like everyone is like throwing this much shit at me. Like I'm having shows canceled, blah, blah, blah. Now I'm the victim. And he likes all of his responses have basically at some point in the apology or quote unquote apology had a thing where he's been like, oh, but now I'm subject to all of this and, like, I'm having such a bad time because of it. And, like, yeah, I, I can also see that side of it, like, how it, how it could get to that. But I think just luckily, like, I'm a pretty logical person <laughs> and I was able to step back and be like, all right, and, like, think about it for a bit and just be like, the real issue is that I said this thing that was wrong, so I should just learn about that thing, tell people that I understand now how it's wrong and what I've learned about it. And just apologize because like, I never, at any point of making any of those comments on Twitter, had in my heart fuck trans people like, right. at all. Like I no, really totally. do not hate trans people, and I still have people to this day who have cancelled coming on the podcast with me. Like after I've posted online and been like, "Oh, blah blah blah," it's going to come on the podcast, and then at the last minute they'll like email me and be like, "Oh, after you said that, some people hit me up and told me that you hate trans people, and now I'm not going <laughs> to come on." And I'm like, "Did you read the response that I posted? Like I don't hate trans people." Oh my fucking god! <clears throat> but yeah, anyway, base nectar. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, so I'm I'm I only I don't even know how much I want to get into this. Like, it, it sucks. It just fucking sucks, and it 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 is the absolute wrong way to deal with the situation that uh, they are in. Um, it's really disgusting. Um, uh, there was an Instagram post that got posted around like or shared around. I think in my Discord like a few weeks ago or a couple months ago. It's like. It was just like this big, like, like woe is me. We don't, we don't stand for cancel culture in the base nectar project. And I'm like, okay, you're referring to yourself, not like the base nectar is a, it's a person, right? It's like it's you. It's not a project, dude. Like first of all, like, like take responsibility for what base nectar is. And secondly, like if if you say something about cancel culture, uh, and and you're serious, um, then we're done. Like like you you're not taking responsibility for your actions um yeah he's like trying to distance himself from it by like hiding behind his llc basically yeah yeah it's which is just like the worst fucking thing you could possibly do like right and it's it's interesting because you when when you had to well when you decided to because let's be let's be honest you you could have done a number of things um that were different than what you did. And they all would have had pretty different outcomes um, in terms of where you are today and what your views are and what other people's views are of you. There is a path like where like where people feel like they need to like get educated and they get sucked into the opposite end of the spectrum. And I think that's what happened with Henson mm -hmm. is that he read stuff that all presented itself as information as, you know, like real things because a lot of this stuff is like well-written it's very jordan peterson you know like it seems like it's logical however um it's still it's still couched in, in an ideology of uh well bigotry for lack of a better way of putting it um and so you could have very easily found sources to re in your research that would have actually pushed you the other way oh i and did Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I the thing is is like I listened to a, a bunch of shit. Like I listened to honestly like 30 hours of podcasts and probably mm. like 70% of them were like this is the thing and 
like 30% of them were right wing for sure. And the reason I listen to so many is so I could try and get the like middle ground correct opinion or whatever, you know, and like, and literally the bottom line of it came down to like after, like I took notes as well, like as I was doing it all, like on a, with a piece of paper and a notes mm-hmm. app, trying to just like make all of the points that were being made and then try and pass it all as like, what is the actual correct thing? And Interesting. Yes, the, the actual correct thing from like scientists, trans people themselves and, you know, people like this who actually study this shit is that it all comes down to testosterone levels. Mm-hmm. And the testosterone levels of somebody who's been on uh, hormones transitioning from a uh, man to a woman uh, after like two or three years is usually about the same as a cis woman. And I mean, I don't know, there's other arguments too, like on some of the right wing podcasts, they start talking about like bone density and like uh-huh, sure. bone bone structure and like other but advantageous things bones. that you might have as a man. Yeah, bones, but bones. I mean, also at the same time, there's like a ton of um, instances where it, like a cis woman has like broken a trans woman's back. So, oh. I don't know. Yeah, that's happened well, we a bunch of times. In, probably like, shouldn't do that. Rugby that league and, I mean, that it happens bad. in sport, you know, that's just what you sign off for when you go into sport, no matter what gender or whatever you are. Sure. Well, I hope that... <sighs> I don't know. I, I hope that anybody who's listening to this realizes that, like, it's – there are a lot of conflicting paths out there that you can take when it comes to finding information, and it is really, really hard. It's really, really hard to have an informed opinion. But I don't think it's very hard to realize that you're not informed and maybe just don't don't fucking say something. Like if, That's exactly like, what I should have done. I should not have had an opinion on that subject at all because I didn't really know anything about it. It's just intuitively I felt that way. And and so many people who I've explained it to since have thought that too. They've been like, oh, yeah, I, that makes sense. Men shouldn't fight women. That's dangerous. But, yeah, no, it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm happy that you ended up on the uh, the end of the spectrum that you did. Um, with your your research and stuff like that. Um, I know it probably wasn't easy for you, but yeah, I mean, it's, I wouldn't be here talking to you if, if you hadn't, you know, done what I consider at least the right thing. Right. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, I'm glad that you, that you are here talking to me. It's been a good conversation. Um, so what are your, what's up for you next? What are you working on at the moment? For the rest of the year, um, I have going to have a couple module videos that are going to come out. Um, are they released modules or unreleased modules? They are all announced. Um, oh, wait, one of them isn't. Um, there, I have three that I'm, I, I know that are coming out. Uh, one of them has not been announced yet. Uh, I'm still beta testing it. The other two, they're out there. Uh, it's the Clank um, Proteo and the Clank Therorec. Um The Proteo is kind of interesting. It's an oscillator that has a slider that goes between um, a sine wave, which is always present down at the bottom, and then when you push the slider all the way up, it morphs to a variable waveform that is defined by an, uh, an input. So you can send it any signal you want and adjust the time of the sampling of that input and it will generate a waveform. It's really neat. If anything, just because it like, 
if anyone's ever confused about like what shape makes what kinds of sounds, this is the thing that will fucking teach you that. Like, because it's like you have a sine wave and like it'll go through the little LED window and then it will hit the edge and all of a sudden you've got what sounds like like a saw wave basically. So it's like really, really um, uh, exposing the the way that wave shapes and waveforms and timbre uh, are related to each other, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, modular um, is great for that kind of stuff. Like, there's so many things in synthesis that I just did not consider to do until I started messing with modules. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, I would, like, make some sound that I've been trying to make for years that I heard in a noisier track once, and I'd be like... Oh, of course, that's how you do it. And then I go back to, <laughs> and then I go back to software, and I'm able to do it in software now too. But it just never occurred to me to like send that thing into this thing because it wasn't so easy as putting a cable into it. So I agree I think with you 100. Modular is like really useful for that kind. Also, yeah, learning, uh, you know, about like the way. So after I messed around with modular a lot, I sort of whittled it all down to like one line of logic that can describe all of it, which is voltage can do three things it can stay the same it can go up or it can go down mm -hmm. that's it <laughs> that's all, like every module that you buy just does those that it just does that in different ways it like yeah <laughs> the module either stays the same or it goes up or it goes down and that's it and yeah, for some reason you need to spend like 50 grand on it to make a song with it <laughs> to make a song yeah absolutely do you still fuck with modular like do you have is that something that's part of your workflow at all um, I, I kept, so I sold off most of them. I used to have like a couple of hundred HP. Mm -hmm. Now I have like 200 or a hundred or something. I have, um, I have mostly like effects because okay. these days I, I like kind of just want to send stuff from my computer to them. So I have like a plasma drive and, oh yeah. um, I have a Q pass and, uh, a morphogen and a couple of oscillators and stuff. And it's like just enough that in conjunction with a computer, I can do some stuff, but not so much that I, I definitely don't have enough to like make a beat anymore. Like I used to have enough to make like almost a whole ass loop that I could mess with and stuff. But now I just have like enough to send signals to and back if I want to do something that sounds less linear than software or something. How long did it take you to go from your multi multi uh, hundred HP to where you are today with with this like specific use case for it? Um, so I think like the curve for me was like from no modular to like having enough to make a whole song was over the course of about a year. Okay, and then probably about another two or three years after that to get back to where I am now. And I think, um, yeah, I basically just got to a certain point and was like, I feel like I'm not using this stuff enough. And it was almost like causing me a bunch of guilt to have it just like sitting in the background Yep. without like, uh, yeah, just like having all this gear sitting there. I was like, I feel like I should be using it. And it just, yeah, it was causing me like, it was Consternation. like, uh, <laughs> yeah, like de de detrimental to the creative process just to have it there. So like I got rid of a bunch of it. You are absolutely not alone in that feeling. Uh, the ger we need to have like a German word for it or something. It's like the opposite of gas. It's like, you know, a gear acquisition <laughs> syndrome. It's like gear gear anxiety syndrome. <laughs> I guess that's just gas. Yeah, but yeah exactly. Like, yeah, yeah you, you walk into the studio and you're like, well, there you are still. And I haven't turned you on for like three months now. <laughs> yeah, my setup now is so minimal. It's like a tiny desk that's like, 
it's like I'm this long and this deep, like that deep. It's like a very, very small desk. Mm -hmm. And then I have like a big ass monitor and then speakers and that's it. And then peripherals like mouse and keyboard. But like all my gear is over here to my left. Um, I try to have like none of it in my peripheral vision just so I can concentrate on the oh. thing I'm concentrating. Okay. Yeah, um, I feel like if I, there's just knobs and buttons and shit everywhere, I get like distracted. And <laughs> How do you work? What, what, what hardware do you have like in terms of like, um, like looks like you have an OB6? Is yeah, that, an OB6. What else do you have I, over there? Uh, I have the OB6. Um, I have a Moog Mother 32, which I barely ever use. I have mm -hmm. a Poly and, uh, sorry, Archuria Polybrute. Oh, yeah. And then I, Great I sense. have a Poly and Tracker, um, an analog electron heat, mm -hmm. um, an Axe FX, like a fractal Axe FX for guitar. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's it. And uh, a vinyl player, in case I want to sample vinyl into the Poly and. I have a Poly and play as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's, that's it. A cool, like a, that's a cool yeah. little box. Yeah, it's the Polyan shit, uh, OB6, um, Polybrute, some modules, and that's about it. So, so I, I try ton. to keep it. Yeah. yeah, I try to keep it extremely minimal. I really felt like I just wanted a couple analogs since, like the Polybrute and the OB6, to in case, mainly in case I'm writing IDM stuff or chill stuff. Like it's really mm. nice to have those just analog pads in the background and, and whatnot. And the tracker, actually, Ben Jordan just lent it to me and never asked me for it back. And <laughs> I actually fucking love that thing. Like, that is the For most, IDM? And it's the like, best thing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Polyan tracker is, like, it's one of those pieces of gear that when I when I got it or when I borrowed it, um, I felt like this deserves its whole own, like, side project thing. Oh. Like, yeah, I was not like, this is a thing I would use for Mr. Bill. I was like, this is a thing that I would start a whole project through and just Holy make shit. music on it. Yeah, like I, it had that kind of effect on me because it's so fun and it does stuff that's so unique. Uh, it's literally the break core machine. Like if you... Oh, yeah. If you've ever thought of like, how does Venetian snares make his music? It's like that. Like, well, he, I know Venetian snares uses renoise, but... Yeah, one. I just I've never really like messed with a tracker like that before, and and after realizing, oh, it's like totally step based, and every step can be completely different, just kind of opened up a bunch of ideas. Absolutely, that's so cool to hear. It, it, it uh, yeah. Anyone that's listening to this, that's like, is curious about you know like, well, breakcore, and then like IDM, and I mean even just like just like '90s jungle, like too, like all that stuff yeah. uh, works on trackers they, they are so good for it um and it's one I of those situations the... oh, sorry, oh go ahead go sorry i was gonna say i kind of want to get the small one the like pocket one that they made you should yeah, I, <laughs> I mean like I it I seems will. like you're like inspired enough by the whole thing to uh to like get use out of it and that one's like super portable so like yeah the, the only thing i don't like about this is that like it's in my studio and that's a problem because when i'm in the studio i'm working yeah. Uh, whereas it seems like a thing that I would just like absolutely rinse on like planes or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that um, I have a couple devices that I bring with me uh, when or I choose from when I'm mm. going on trips. Um, and yeah, you probably got like so much them. gear now. I try not to. Oh, what I wanted but to ask though, <laughs> companies like, like send you shit too, right? So you probably they just want to, but I don't yeah. want all of it because um, mm. there's always a uh, there's always a uh, 
it's a transactional thing, right? Like, so it's, yeah. there's you an expectation. <laughs> yep, exactly. And yeah, yeah, it's not even like, oh, I bought this for myself and I don't use it. It's like, oh, they sent me this and now they want me to do a video for it. And I've already done lots to talk about this online, but I can't, I can't pay my mortgage with a, you know, a synthesizer. Like I can't sell it, but like, you know, that's, that's not how I want to live my life. So I'm actually thinking about like just saying, you know, maybe no new gear in 2024 that I don't buy for myself, you know, videos, whatever. I don't know. We'll see. I'm not sure. What I want to ask you is you are a really interesting case for the fact that you do so much in the computer. Um, so much of how you make your music is in the computer and depends on that really nonlinear sort of like edit, like bounce, like kind of thing. How do you integrate the very linear, like, like happens in real time aspect of like the OB6 or the Polybrute? Like, uh, what, uh, how does that work into your workflow? So normally I'll start to use those after I'm already like working on a melody or a chord progression or something. And then I'll just like have the thought, oh man, I wish this was like analog sounding, you know, like sounding super lush and warm and, uh, you know, have that kind of non-linearity to it with like the noise floor on it and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And at that point, then I'll be like, all right, and I'll just send MIDI out to one of them and, and record it back in basically. And How I does mean, that... you can... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, you can get that sound using software, but it's just... It's never quite the same and the sounds that occur to me to create are never quite the same. Like I won't open a phase plan or a serum instance and make a sound that I would make on the OB6, <laughs> even though I, I probably could. It just doesn't like talk to me that way. And actually John yeah. Hopkins, was it John Hopkins? I think it was. He had like this really interesting thing to say on um, Jamie Liddell's podcast, which was that he feels like every piece of gear has like a like a finite amount of music in it and mm. he was like oh this piano that i've got at my house is like i've gotten every piece of music that is that will come out of that piece of gear out of it but when he plays another piano he like thinks of all these new riffs and shit and i kind of <laughs> feel that way a little bit about synthesizers it's like when i opened phase plan for the first time i had so many ideas and mm. now when i open it it's like there's a finite amount of ideas that I have with it that are new, you know, like I'm mm -hmm. mostly doing stuff that I've tried out before in it. So it's like, it feels like these pieces of software have like a finite amount of inspiration to my specific brain and the hardware also does, but it's like they're different ideas, you know, like the stuff that occurs to me to do on them is different. That is a really wholesome and, and sort of like creativity forward way of, approaching the concept of like whether or not a piece of gear matters right because mm. there's there's a couple different ways that i see the discourse going with this and one of them is like um oh you're just collecting synths you know you're, you're just buying shit like you're not making any music with it blah 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 and then there's the other side where it's like um, you only need this one thing, you know, like, uh, you just use a doll or whatever. But the fact of the matter is inspiration is a really, really difficult thing to come by. And, um, if a piece of uh, gear inspires you, then that's really important. Um, like you, you, you know, you are interested in maybe doing a whole fucking side project just because like of how much the tracker inspired you. And I felt the same way when I got like the OP1 for the first time or, 
when I got my tracker for the first time or the electron boxes, all of these things speak to you as a musician in, in specific ways. And it's okay to like, for them to have like a, a shelf life, you know, like just to get rid of it once it doesn't ha- speak to you that way anymore. Totally. Like, yeah, I agree. It's not bad. <laughs> and also like if I spend, you know, a thousand bucks on a piece of gear and that gear inspires like a really cool song, even just one, and I finish that song and I put it out, it's worth it. Like even if the song doesn't do well, you know, if, if I had a lot of fun doing it and it, you know, gave me like even a couple of days of that like pure engaged happiness that you get from, you know, a new piece of gear or something that you're really engaged with, that's totally worth it in my opinion. I mean, obviously there's a balance there between the amount of money and the amount of fun slash happiness, but like, you know, I would say like for every maybe day of that like pure engagement, like pure creative engagement is worth like 500 bucks at least. Like, that, that, that feeling is just like, uh, it's like the, the most top tier human experience that you can possibly have, I think, is to be that engaged in something to where like you just, you know, not thinking about anything else and you're in just like pure creative flow and stuff. To me, yeah, that's that worth a lot. Flo- that flow state. Yeah. And I, you know, you're very like, pragmatic about it like like you and I, this might have something to do with you know you also being like a professional musician is that you're not necessarily just creating because you know it's a hobby anymore you're you're doing it one because you love it but also because like it's your job so like like you have a very direct like sort of cost benefit analysis relationship with like a tool i guess like you can't waste a bunch of time with a tool that doesn't um doesn't work for you, I guess, would be the way to put it. I don't think I would want to even if I wasn't making music professionally because to me, the and maybe this is why I became a professional, but to me the goal has just always been to create music mm-hmm. and to like not necessarily even finish it but like get somewhere with it, you know, like make some progress on something. Uh, that's always the, been the thing that I find most rewarding is like progress. Like if I just play with shit and just go around in a circle <laughs> and yeah. never really like, get any sort of like linear progress where I can hit play and like sit back and listen to it. That's not rewarding for me that much. I mean, it is like the engagement whilst going around in the circle is fun and it's always, <laughs> it's not a waste either. Cause you like are learning during that time and that's sort of unmeasurable as well. But yeah, for me, it's like, or if I fuck with something like a piece of gear or a new piece of software, like I want to be seeing some sort of like progress towards something, whether it be like, some new sounds that I'll use in a track at some point or some new presets that I'll like load up at some point to do something else with or, or obviously a piece of finished music. Um, but yeah. So, so when you like, important. when you sit down with something like that and you, and you're exploring it, like do, does your brain kind of say like, Hey, uh, I have these different buckets that this, this process could, um, uh, fulfill like they like it could be like a sample pack it could be like a track it could be you know this this or this is that something that you're kind of thinking about when you're exploring something for the first time like you know what bucket is this going to end up in so to speak <clears throat> um to some degree but usually when i'm like first messing around with something i'm kind of just like figuring it out and at that point i'm not really thinking of like which bucket it should go in because the bucket it should go in first is learning, I guess. Mm. So if you count that as a bucket, I guess that's like where the first bit always goes <laughs> is to yeah, just sure. learning. 
like just getting enough information about it so that like when I do want to put it in a bucket, it doesn't take me a year to do it. Right. Um, and then after that point, I guess, yeah, then I start like when I feel like I've got my head around it a little bit, which usually takes somewhere between an hour or 10 hours, whatever. Um, <clears throat> then I start thinking like, oh, okay, I can like put it here, put it there, make samples out of it, do whatever. Yeah, what about and, you? And what, what's your general process when you start messing around with gear? Are you mostly thinking like, how is this going to turn into a video or how is this going to turn into music? Or It really depends on, on whether or not the piece of gear has been sent over for the purpose of uh, a video. Um, so if something has been sent over for a video, um, I have to get to know it uh, from a pretty deep level. Yeah, uh, I have to understand it. About it yeah. yeah. And I, and, and there's a, there's a, um, creator on YouTube called a uh, div kid who does module dives. And he is like the stuff he does with things like it, it blows my mind. It just like, he thinks about mo he, he thinks about modular and, and knows things about how different things would go together in a way that I would aspire to. And so when I sit down with something, I kind of think about like, okay, well, how can I make this musical first and foremost? And then are there any weird edge cases that might be fun for people? But always it's in the service of like, are we making this musical or not? Um, that's always my main, my main goal. And also, I mean, I, I generally want to try to pay, make a piece of music with the thing in the video to give that context. That's what's fun to me. Um, if something is something that like I bought for myself just to have, um, <laughs> it may take me longer to learn it. I've got this Prophet X here, which I absolutely love, um, but I haven't spent a lot of time with it because I've just been so busy doing other things. My priorities, unfortunately, are not on my own music. Um, it's it's mostly on everything around there, like the, the job, so to speak, that allows me to eventually at some point sit down and make music. Hi, Echo. Mm. Yeah, I have so a lot of uh, respect for people like you who do that because, like, for instance, I got the tracker. Yeah. And when Ben lent it to me, he was like, yeah, if you want to make a video for it or whatever, go for it. Like, And I absolutely, like, want to make a video on it because it's fucking awesome and I think people should know about it and I would like to show it to people, but I just do not feel like I know anywhere near enough about it to speak about it with any semblance of uh, you <laughs> you will once you make your project on it like yeah. that's the thing i think i think that would be an immense um immensely like powerful way of showing it off if you specifically like dived into it and we're like yeah i made i made this like whole ep or whole album on this thing um here's here's what i he, here's why you know like basically because like something about it is is drawing you in um and i think that that's a really interesting thing to uh to focus on like putting doing a video on like like the how it works is not so as interesting as like why it leads to a certain creative outcome especially for you and mm. why you're excited about it right how long Part do you think you spend usually on like a piece of gear before you think that you uh, are a voice of reason on it it definitely depends on how complex the piece of gear is. Um, uh, with that clank, clank, the the Proteo uh, and their little um, like light recorder thing, I I told them that I wasn't going to be able to get a video out until um, like November because I th I had a bunch of other stuff going on and I thought that like it would take me a while to get to know their device. Um, it was well designed and uh, I understood it a lot quicker than I thought it did. So like 
two days on that thing. Other things like sequencers or um, like the electron boxes, stuff like that, those are going to take like a week um, or so to get to know uh, to the point where I can talk about them. And I'll generally have to make like an outline because uh, if I'm being, you know, if I'm being hired to do a video on it, because oh, it's almost like with your DJ set stuff, it's like, I have to be on rails a little bit uh, in order to make sure that I get everything out in the right order and also don't like say the wrong thing, so to speak, because right. a little mistake in a video like that can actually change someone's entire perception of like if the device would work for them or not. Because if you say like mm. like some spec wrong or some like button shortcut wrong, people are going to like pick up on that and be like, oh, that sounds mm. bad or Probably also someone's opinion of how credible you are as a reviewer too, right? I am concerned about that. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to make sure that um, I don't steer anyone wrong. And if I do and I don't know about it, you know, the comments will tell me. Um, and then uh, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll deal with that uh, however I can. Yeah, one of the best ways to learn is to teach for sure. Um, so when Ben put out his video of Ableton versus Fruity Loops, Mm -hmm. I was also supposed to do one at the same time, but the other way around, because obviously I'm an Ableton power user, but I don't really fuck with Fruity. And yeah. I spent like probably two weeks during the pandemic using nothing but Fruity Loops just, and I made like uh, one and a half like finished songs in it. And at the end of it, I was like, I'm not doing a video on this shit. I don't know anywhere near enough <laughs> to do it. Like I, I knew enough to like write a finished piece of music in it, but I don't think I knew enough to have a proper opinion on it because at any point, like in the video, I could have been like, oh, but I wish it had this, which Ableton has, and I wish it could do this, which Ableton yeah. does and all this stuff. I just knew the comments were going to be filled with fruity users being like, oh, it can do that. You just, <laughs> you're just dumb. So I was like, all right, I'm like, yeah, I just didn't feel like I had a, like a, my head around it. And I just feel like that with every piece of gear. Like there's sure. st stupid amounts of shit that I don't know about it. And the more I learn about it, the more I realize I don't know about it. And yeah. then I'm just, I get too much anxiety to make videos about it. That's okay. Like, guess what? Like a ton of people just use their gear and, and maybe only use like, you know, 50 to 75% of what it does. Like there's a really great example of this. Like someone in my discord got this little module called Gliss and it's just like the simplest touch strip looking thing that like records CV and puts it out. And then they posted the manual and I just kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and there were all these different modes and all these different fucking like, like different ways it could be used. And I'm like, <laughs> yo, uh, this sucks. <laughs> like, frankly, this thing like looks crazy. Yeah. So it's so simple on the front. You look at it and you're like, oh, that's going to send CV yeah, it's out. It's like and, a touch strip thing. But internally it's got a ton of different ways of, uh, interfacing with it. And I kind of just glossed over. I'm like, I don't want to know all this yeah to and like I do some <laughs> secret like three button tap to like exactly. get it into a new mode and yeah mm. so i i don't i think like if you're actually using tools to create like you'll use the tool in the way that you need it to work for you to create and it right. is kind of interesting when you're using a tool and you're like I wonder if it can do this. I've never learned and then you find out that it can and you're like oh shit that's fucking cool but like you want to talk about like the worst thing to try to like wrap your head around and it's a doll. Like like 
to know a DAW is like to know like arcane knowledge. Like it's, it's like to know a whole other language. <laughs> it is truly, and it's very, very, very difficult. I think to switch from something that you have like gelled with so hard, like like me with Ableton, like I assume you with Ableton, to something that is supposed to do similar things but has a different language uh, in which it presents it. Um, that's me with Bitwig. It's like I know there's a lot of power there. But when I open it, I'm always looking for all the things that like I expect from live, and it's cl it's so close that it's like it makes it even worse for me because I'm like, <laughs> I know this should be here somewhere, <laughs> but like I can't find it. Bitwig is crazy. I honestly probably would switch to it if I wasn't so invested in Ableton. And what I mean by that is, I have literally like hundreds of unfinished tracks in Ableton that mm -hmm. I do plan to finish, and it just seems like. A little bit counterproductive and like i'm working backwards to like stem it all out and export all the midi and export all the patches just to reload it into another daw so i can work on it yeah um but the longer i stay in ableton the more projects i also start in ableton so it's kind of like this yeah it makes switching really hard but if, if <laughs> it i could really start does. it yeah if i could start again today and i had nothing on my plate i think i would start with bitwig is what yeah. i would suggest to someone I think that's completely completely reasonable, especially considering the sound design capabilities within Bitwig. It's truly astounding what uh, what they have packed in there. Mm. Well, hey man, um, th thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This was yeah. awesome to like finally connect with you and chat a bit. And yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. Hey, likewise, it's been really great. And um, I hope that you, yeah, take care of yourself. <laughs> yeah, cheers. <laughs> Yo, what's up? Thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. This show is produced and edited by Robert Fumo. You can get early access to the show by going to my website, mrbillstunes.com and paying me instead of Patreon. And remember to go rate and review on iTunes or I'm going to come to your house and punch your dog in the throat, upper deck your toilet and fuck your partner. Note, I may or may not do those last couple of things. Uh, you should probably just go rate it on iTunes or Spotify or whatever it is that you listen to the podcast on because it really helps the podcast. Um, but but just know that, that it'll go a long fucking way to me not doing those things if you do go do that. So uh, just, just putting that out there.